Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations in Cocoa. I'm Lauren Heineck, the host and producer of this podcast. This series stems from over six years of industry work, conversations with peers, collaborators, and mentors. You can find more of my writings and stay updated to future podcasts at laurenontheweekend.substack.com. That's WKND, as well as find me on Twitter at Weekend Chocolate and Instagram Lauren on the Weekend. If you're in a position to support these podcasts and find this content useful, please think about becoming an annual subscriber. Thanks again for your support. I really appreciate you. Today, in conversation with Kelsey Tenney, Head of Operations at Voyage Foods. It is a pleasure to have you here today. As you were just mentioning before we press the record button, it's not very often that food scientists are interviewed for common podcasts, and I like to think of this as an uncommon one, but therefore I'm really looking forward to hearing about all the things you've been working on at Voyage Foods, your background in food science, sensory analysis, and how that might apply to the world of these food products that are part of our nostalgia, part of our daily life, and how they could be a part of our future food lives. To get started, would you please just take a moment to share the current project that you're working on at Voyage Foods? Maybe what is that company, where you're based? Thanks for having me, Lauren. I am, as I mentioned, in operations at Voyage Foods. I have a food science background and helped found this company a little less than a year ago with a couple of close colleagues who are friends. The real aim of Voyage Foods is to address, as you mentioned, sort of nostalgic love foods that are becoming more difficult to either consume or produce with looming climate change problems, humanitarian problems, and, you know, even health problems. So for example, Our first product we'll be releasing is peanut butter, which is meant to mimic a GIF process type peanut butter 100%, but is made with none of the top 10 allergens in the United States listing. And so that would be an example of like a health issue that we're going after because as we all know, allergen issues are becoming of greater and greater concern, especially kids who are allergic to peanuts and have anaphylaxis at school. But the main project that I'm very excited about that we've been working on the longest is chocolate. I have a deep background in chocolate science and processing, and chocolate is something that everyone loves. I think it touches most people most days of their lives. It's sort of with us, the good times and the bad. So it's a product that's very special and near and dear to my heart. Because of that increase in demand, along with the decrease in production from climate change, you know, other things like blights and things like that, it's becoming more and more difficult to meet the demand of chocolate, particularly um, commodity chocolate, which is used in things like cookies and crackers, things like that, not necessarily, you know, the chocolate you're buying from, you know, a bean to bar producer. And so that commodity chocolate is concentrated in production in West Africa, which has been particularly challenged by climate change. Also, because of that difficulty, Farmers have been trying to keep up with the demand. So deforestation is a concern in West Africa. And also, as we're all aware, the humanitarian issues are quite concerning. A lot of child labor, even if it's somewhat voluntary, as you could say, 
it's still causing a lot of current inequities there. We're sort of addressing the more commodity chocolate space with our chocolate. It is meant to mimic 100%. That's always our goal. We use natural ingredients, no fermentation or synthetic biology. And we have currently a dark chocolate and a vegan milk chocolate. Thank you for that overview. I would love to go into a little detail about some of the elements of texture and aspect, how you might be replicating these foods. Does it require a use of other commodities, ones that might be more easily sought out or ones that might be able to stand up better to climate change? What sort of are these levers for how you might think about replacing? Of course, chocolate is what we're most concerned with here in this episode. And also why to mimic precisely, I think would be quite interesting because you could have an opportunity to educate a consumer based on a new flavor profile or a new texture. I have a few parts to this. One is that the conversation that we're sort of sparking with this is already complex. You know, we could create something that's sort of chocolate, but better, but that might be in the future, you'd be creating a brand new category of food. And I think that's very difficult to communicate and also doesn't necessarily address the issue if we're trying to, you know, reduce pressure on the cocoa supply chain by being able to replace some of that commodity chocolate. You know, we always get asked, why not make it zero sugar, things like that, because that would be healthier. That's definitely in the cards for the future. But to start, it just makes more sense for us to really create something that's a one-to-one replacement. So for example, this chocolate can be used. We've been testing it. We have an in-house pastry chef, so we've been testing it in recipes, baking, chocolate chip cookies, brownies, things like that, but also in beverages like hot chocolate, ice cream production. We've really tried to mimic texture and flavors. Allison Brown, who was on the podcast with recently, she spoke about some of the descriptive analysis techniques in sensory And so we've been doing a lot of descriptive analysis for all of our products, but in particular chocolate, because people just find the mouthfeel and the flavor so important. For us, you know, descriptive analysis panel is our trained R&D scientists and anyone else who's close enough to the product to really be able to delve deep into the various attributes to be able to describe how it tastes, how it smells, how it feels in the mouth, things like that. And then for the ingredients, So I mentioned previously that we're using all natural ingredients. For us, it's important to try to really create a technology that has flexibility. So it's our goal to craft solutions that have multiple inputs that you can use. Therefore, you're not only flexible in the types of ingredients you can use, but also the location of production. So for example, we're currently using leftover grape seeds from wine production as the core cocoa replacement ingredient, which is very cool. It's an upcycled product that generally goes to waste. We're actually trying to give it new life, so to speak. The only processing you have to do for us to be able to use it is dry it once it's done being produced. But you could imagine you're in New England, for example, and it's cranberry season. You know, we've done testing on other sorts of byproducts, fruit seeds, things like that. And that's really important to us because, yeah, we really don't want to be pigeonholed into one commodity like cocoa, something that would be more challenging to produce as climate change progresses, because everything's going to get more challenging to produce in the current environment we know. The other ingredients we're using, 
we actually use nut meals from nut and seed meals from oil processing. So like the leftover cake that gets dried and ground and we use that material. And then we use sugar, which we are not replacing as of yet. Sugar is still sugar that has its own inherent possible issues. But for now, we're just focusing on the cocoa. We've tried a couple of oils to replace cocoa butter, which we all know has very unique properties. And so we're using things like shea butter. It is produced often in Africa and in similar areas as cocoa. So we're sort of, you know, hoping that might be a way for us to address some of the farmer insecurities we might be uncovering with a product like this. We've also tested palm, which works well, but palm has its own challenges with environmental degradation and things like that. You know, the fat, I think we can be flexible with, but right now we're aiming toward the shea. I find shea butter a really interesting ingredient. I've used it in cooking following some West African recipes and even in some ganache type formulations for bonbons. And I think it can be very applicable to the chocolate industry. And so if I'm understanding correctly, the innovation is within the recipe itself, but then the idea would be to replicate this in many versions or many potential factories around the world. Or is there a very proprietary element? Yeah, that's a great question. It's the recipe itself and also the type of processing that we apply. And then we can talk about a third prong, which is We actually blend all of our own natural flavors, which we add as well to the product. So I'll start first with the processing. Most of us here are food scientists, actually, which is really good for some things and not so great for other things. But what it's really good for is that all of us are pretty nerdy about food science and also food processing. So it's really important for us that we're not going to basically be another food tech company that raises $600 million and then can only create something on the bench top. It's really important for us that this is scalable from day one, which is why we actually have our own manufacturing facility in Oakland, and that's where we're based. You know, we're less than a year from founding, and we already have a line ready to go to produce products. We've scaled the chocolate to one ton per hour already, basically using equipment trials at larger vendors, but that gives us confidence that we're able to reproduce this in a scalable way that makes sense. The processing techniques we use are sourceable from a variety of different areas in food processing. And so none of them are, you know, super custom for what we're doing, but they're unique in how we arrange them and apply them to the products. We're really, really excited about that technology. The other form of technology, which is sort of the top note, if you will, the flavor and aroma that really makes you think of something as, wow, this really tastes like chocolate or what have you, is that we create through our own techniques here using analytical. Also, Allison mentioned this when she was talking about using things like gas chromatography, liquid chromatography to profile, you know, what is in a chocolate bar or what is in a roasted cocoa nib. For us, it's important because we can analyze chocolate bars and then cocoa nibs and things like that and create our own natural flavors from the results that we can analyze there. It's important because that also allows us, if we wish in the future, to create something that might be more akin to a fine cocoa, for example. So we could try to replicate an Ecuadorian single origin chocolate bar. 
But also within that is reaction chemistries. We are all chemists and pay very close attention to Maillard browning. Everyone's familiar with Maillard browning when they're, you know, making toast, even searing a steak. It's that roasty, toasty goodness that gives you, in my opinion, all of the best flavor compounds. And so we can, you know, really control that reaction and produce reaction flavors that also can lend themselves, for example, to a chocolate bar. It's all of those things together that really do create a proprietary technology. But because, you know, we're not creating something brand new and expecting to scale it in 20 years, it makes it scalable, but yet still unique to what we're doing. You look right now on the commodity market for cacao or even within circles of communities that are developing fermentaries with fine flavor cacao. I don't think that you would necessarily say that there's a shortage of cacao. There seems to be a lot of supply at this moment. So where does the company foresee or maybe what research has led you all to believe that there's a need for this and is the moment now or is this more thinking, you know, 10, 20 years down the line? Yeah, that's a great question. When you look at the market, yes, we can currently supply all of the demand. When you look at the next 30 or 40 years, the estimates due to climate change, especially within West Africa, it's going to create a lot of supply chain constraints. And so 70% of the world's cocoa comes from West Africa. And there is a map, I can look this up and send it to you, I forget who created it, but where a substantial percentage of the cocoa-producing regions are going to be vastly affected by climate change. A lot of that is a change in rainfall and temperature. It does feel a bit doomy and gloomy to create what we would call potentially an alternative for something that might be disappearing, for example. But it's our hope that if we create this alternative, we might be able to keep something like chocolate enjoyable for everyone forever, hopefully. You know, it's my hope, personal hope that if we do this, we can then concentrate on archiving, you know, some of the fine flavored cocos. Guitard does a lot of work with this, but archiving a lot of the heritage cocoa and and making sure that we can maintain that. But we would like to remove the pressures of a lot of that commodity cocoa production that will become more and more difficult and more and more trying on the land. That might be Mighty Earth that produced that image, but we can add that as a link to the show later on. I'm also then curious if this is a one-for-one replacement for consumers or for food manufacturers, do you see a similar one-to-one replacement for communities of farmers? Might they be able to remove their cocoa trees and implant mangoes? Might they be then able to use mango kernels and sell that to whatever buyers would be your suppliers for production? I'm going to admit I'm not the expert in this area. I have asked a lot of questions and it seems that could definitely be a thing that could be an alternative for farmers. You know, one thing we are a little worried about is that one of the most common replacements in cocoa plantations if farmers wish to get out of the market of cocoa is rubber tree planting because they're fast you can still make a bunch of money it's a little bit more of a pain in the butt but seems like a replacement a lot of farmers are going toward that is 
somewhat more environmentally degrading than cocoa. So that is something we're worried about. I think we're working on creating an advisory board that can help us sound through some of these things. And actually, I was speaking with Dr. Robert Childs at Penn State. He actually had his class think of some intelligent solutions for thinking about these ethical issues because Penn State has now more ethical agriculture courses. It's good that we're all thinking about these things more. I could say yes, but I think the problem is a bit more complex than that. And I don't have enough information to give a true solution right now. Right. I mean, I certainly think that it would go hand in hand with the work of a lot of multinationals at this point who might be implementing their own forecasting and therefore plans. Which brings me to an interesting question as well. If you see yourselves working hand in hand with those companies or what role in the supply chain do you hope to offer? We are a bit early on, I think, for some of those, but we have spoken. Our biggest companies and conglomerates that will definitely take notice first, that would be the most important to take notice, I guess, would be, you know, the sourcers like Barry Calvo and, and Olam and, and, and companies like that are definitely going to be somewhat threatened by this. You know, we're not going after Nestle and Hershey. They purchase from companies like Barry Calvo. We are really trying to have those companies take notice and, you know, especially the governments themselves have some role to play in a lot of those deals. As we're moving forward, we would like to be more involved in some of that behind the scenes negotiation or, or what have you so that we can more tailor our solutions to be more educated around what sort of impact we're having or what sort of impact we could have in a beneficial way. Right now, we're not necessarily thinking of working with those people, but I think once they take notice and once we're large enough to replace, I don't know, let's say 1% of the commodity cocoa market, which would be massive, that would, the time then would come that they would probably be most interested in connecting. And, you know, that might be five, six years from now. At that point, we'll have a team more prepared to actually do that sort of governance. We're definitely interested in being a company for good. And so however we get there, we're willing to entertain it and get closer. I appreciate you walking through these things with me, Kelsey. I know that it's very early on in the company's history. And a lot of these are just my own sort of big picture questions of how we can think about real change making and innovation in a space that has been pretty stagnant for a couple hundred years. Or if you want to go even further back. It's exciting to know that there's individuals that are concerned about the ethics as well as the innovation and how that might collide into an opportunity for consumers to have what they're looking for, but also to be educated on why the food system functions as it does or or why it does need a significant shift. As you were mentioning, this is within the hopes that it can replace the chips in cookies or maybe the chocolate in a brownie batter. Do you want the consumers to know that there is a replacement? Do you hope that they will take pause and consider why is there now something that's mimicking their chocolate and what maybe was wrong with it beforehand and how perhaps that realization could impact the larger global scale of cocoa buying and chocolate purchasing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have for our sales strategy right now, 
we're really hoping to be an ingredient that people are proud of. And exactly, it should really create attention from consumers. We wish to be a consumer brand, which is why we're creating our own brand. But the reason we're doing that is so that when companies are looking for ingredients and solutions, that it gives them a value add to use our product and advertise it. We'd like to be, when you think of like Intel Inside, for example, that was a brilliant marketing campaign, but it also created trust within products that people saw the Intel sticker and they immediately trusted the product, knew it would do what they needed it to do. We hope that the Voyage V, we have a, a V symbol, we want that to be advertised on products that use our chocolate or any of the other ingredients that we're selling because we want consumers to really trust it. We're not trying to create a compound coating that tricks consumers into thinking it's chocolate. We do want to start those conversations and also really create value for the brands also that are using the product. We don't want to be a way to stabilize, you know, the bottom line of a company, even though we might, but we really wish to be a consumer brand that people trust and look for. With that idea that consumers even can differentiate between what is compound and what is chocolate, I think is a really um, funny uh, place to, to be where we are right now because the industry has done a phenomenal job, if you will, pulling the wool over our eyes just selling everything as one without offering that opportunity to understand what goes into our food and what we're eating. And I think it's caused detrimental harm, not only to our health, but also to just our own social interactions with the way that we manipulate and kind of, to use the word exploit, our own preparations, because we have no idea the real integrity of anything. And it sounds very fascinating that there's a, a new wave of companies that are interested in integrity through waste products. I'd like to go back to that because I think that's a, a really imperative place of where we face some concerns and also some hopeful potential shifts in the market, knowing that not only climate change, but also food sovereignty, food security. You're going to be leaders in the food innovation space that shows other people they can use waste byproducts do you hope that that trickles down into other areas of the supply chain or other products that could come to life? I want to preface by saying most of the food industry is incredibly, very non-wasteful. It's very good at utilizing all of its products. If you look at orange juice production, for example, all of the peels, all of those things get sent for further extraction and flavor production, and then they get ground down into fiber. And so a lot of the industry is actually very good about utilizing all of its waste. However, as you trickle down that waste stream, the material gets less and less valuable. We're really trying to really create a lot of value out of the material that is sort of at the end of that run. And so when you look at grape seeds, for example, you can actually create a lot of value-added products out of grapeseed. You can create color and, and nutraceuticals and things like that, but that's a very small percentage of the global wine production, for example. And even if you look at Concord grapes and, and Niagara grapes and things like that that are used in Welch's grape juice, there is not a lot of utilization beyond compost and animal feed for, in this particular case, uh, those materials. 
that's how we sort of see giving a second life to something that is could be utilized in a better way. And I think the waste stream utilization has become very popular amongst startups and other companies. You know, a lot of the issues, though, that do arise is that if the company gets large enough and the waste stream is no longer heavy enough to really support their growth, that can create an issue. But because we are trying to utilize this upcycled product, what we're calling it, we're hoping that we can create that flexibility that if, you know, that ever does happen, because as we all know, wine is also being affected by climate change, then we can pivot. And I think that is important to build flexibility. You know, we've all seen some of the broken supply chains with COVID, you know, really threatening the fast and efficient production of products that we're used to. Even more than just upcycle ingredients, we're really hoping to create a culture where we are creating more pivot points and fail safes and plan B's and C's and D's if your plan A doesn't necessarily pan out and to create something that's just as good as the plan A. I think that's even more important to us than necessarily using upcycled ingredients and hoping that, you know, sparks fire across the industry because that has sort of fizzled out for a few companies. But if we can do both at the same time, that would be ideal. That's a really good point, Kelsey. I hadn't thought about how when you're going one direction and it becomes popular, then you're seeing the squeeze on the other side and what that might do to the overall market. When you'd mentioned this idea of replicating it almost sounded like aromas where you'd be able to say like, this is a flavor profile we're looking for and this is how we'll do so. I had always heard that in chocolate that was near impossible because of the near 600 compounds that you find within the molecules of cocoa. And please correct me here on the language, but how did you go about doing such? Or like, what are you looking for precisely that makes someone take a sniff or you know use their gustatory elements and say, this is chocolate. Yes, the food industry and scientists have been attempting to replicate chocolate since World War II. Fun fact, I guess, most of the industry has attempted to do only what you've just described. So analyze cocoa, analyze chocolate, figure out which volatile organic compounds, the molecules that you spoke of, are present, figure out how much is there to the best of your ability, and then dose it into something that's really bland and make it taste like chocolate is what you're hoping. Because there are, some people are estimating tens of thousands of volatile organic compounds in something like chocolate, it's very complex flavor. That is an approach we chose not to take. Instead, we have done a two-prong approach really, and that is you know, using those top notes as an accent so we can analyze and be aware of the specific compounds that are very important to a cocoa flavor that we can't necessarily replicate any other way, but then also looking at the processing of our ingredients to mimic similar processes. If you look at cocoa, for example, from a cacao pod, it's really a seed. If we're looking at a different type of seed from a different area of the globe, what sort of processing techniques can we apply to get as close as we can to something you would associate with a roasted nib. With that two-prong approach, we've been able to get much closer. And it's actually a lot easier because we don't have to strip the flavor out of natural ingredients. We can harness that inherent flavor and 
just steer it in the right direction and then add in what you would imagine, for example, like a vanilla extract to a cookie, you're just enhancing the cocoa flavor. You're not actually creating something that tastes just like vanilla. And so that's the sort of approach we take. It's what makes us, I would say, faster to market because we're not relying inherently on the speed and accuracy of our analytical techniques because we're never going to win that race. There are you know, massive flavor companies that have dozens and dozens and dozens of really experienced scientists and millions of dollars of machines. So we're never going to win that race. This two-prong approach has gotten us the closest and the fastest to market thus far. If you had to say the skill set of Voyage Foods, what would be your strongest points as a team? Some of the most important traits we have in our scientists here and that we really try to emulate throughout the team are curiosity and creativity. A lot of the large corporations have, as I mentioned, tried and, and you know, gotten close, but not, not close enough. And a lot of that is because of the um, bureaucratic handcuffs you might have. So you have to go through a very full, you know, design of experiments and it's a lot of money and time and costly. And then you get people switching. We try to create an environment where people are encouraged to be the subject matter expert on their product and then just get very creative with various ingredients, processing techniques, flavor profiles as they see, you know, to be successful. I would say we also have, though, a very good dose of realism because we know that processing is the key to success here. We want this to be for everyone, not just for the wealthy elite, like the first Impossible Burger, for example, you might think of. We want everyone to be creative and curious, but also be very real about how you would process that, how you would source that ingredient. Is that an ingredient that could support a launch of a product if it became successful? And what would your backup be? Those three things are what we really strive for in our scientists here. And in most of our employees, we want everyone to be very curious about what they're doing and, and take ownership. Those are definitely the tenants at Voyage Foods. And when is the product coming to market or what is the plan for launch or how might it be available? You said it was a consumer-minded setup initially, but will that also look like other brands using Voyage Foods? How might consumers find these products? The peanut butter will be available first. That will launch within the next month. We're ready to go. We just have to, you know, as a food safety conscious organization, we have a couple of inspections left for our facility to make sure we're legally allowed to sell. So we're ready to go. We just have to wait in line for the California Department of Public Health. And then the chocolate we are aiming to launch in May. Both of those products will be available online, but we're hoping to get into as many retailers as we can because direct-to-consumer shipping is not the most sustainable way for people to try products, especially chocolate, because it has to be shipped with ice and, and styrofoam or compostable version of styrofoam. We will have that available because we want everyone to be able to purchase it, but our, our real key will be retailers and eventually, hopefully, as an ingredient for manufacturers, and particularly for the peanut butter food service. We're very much hoping to, you know, 
maybe the next time you get on a Delta flight or JetBlue or something, you might be able to have peanut butter again on the flight. I cannot help but hark back to my days as a, a young person and all the times that there was peanut butter in various instances and school trips and birthday parties and what a future of food will look like. Quite a time to be living in. With that, Kelsey, I'm curious if you could speak to what you know about competitors on the market, if you see them as competitors and how you might coincide or even overlap with one another. Yes. In the chocolate space, there are a couple of companies that are doing precision fermentation of ingredients of chocolate itself. Those companies are fairly early on. They're more in like an incubator type stage. They're also quite a different company from us because precision fermentation is still quite expensive and difficult to scale. If one of these companies is successful in replicating chocolate one-to-one, that's very impressive. There's a lot of ways to go with that. You know, would that technology be approachable enough to actually scale and create a product that wasn't $50 for a chocolate bar? You know, those companies are on our radar. We're not really that competitive with them. We are just a different company. And I would say because we're creating a technology platform, not just a product, that means that we're able to actually innovate on a different level. We're creating a process by which we can hopefully replicate most food products that would be in danger of disappearing or becoming more difficult for consumers to actually purchase and enjoy. And so that's why we do have competitors, but we're not really looking at them as competitors. And it's also for us, anyone that's in the conversation that you know makes it more approachable for consumers or less scary is something that's really positive for us because we're not really trying to be the only company that's creating these alternatives. We're just trying to start the conversation and the more resonance people have around that, the better it is for everyone. And Kelsey, you have spent a lot of your life enjoying chocolate, using chocolate in recipes, studying chocolate at Penn State. Here you are now in a startup that is focusing on something that is like chocolate, but not. Did you ever see yourself in this position? And what might you say to the skeptics who think there will never be a replacement for such a product and maybe there shouldn't be? Yes, I'm a true chocolate nerd. I read about it all the time, even though I'm doing slightly less science right now and more operational type things. Because these products are so nostalgic, it's true. There will never be a one-to-one replacement in that regard. There's something about if you're purchasing a chocolate bar for the story of the founder, for the story of the farmer, for the, the small artisan creation of that bar, a fine chocolate, that is something that will be very difficult to replicate. That is more emotional. And we're trying to connect with consumers on an emotional level because it's so important to how we eat and what we eat. But I think this is just a whole different ball game. For most people, when they're consuming chocolate, it's nostalgic because of the environment you're in and in who you're with. And so we just want to ensure that that experience does not disappear. Not that we're trying to replace that other experience. 
you know, we have a tagline that we should be able to enjoy our favorite foods forever. And while that sounds very grandiose and a bit vague for us, it really does resonate because, you know, we really are trying to nurture those food experiences in any way that we can so that, you know, your grandchildren can experience the same thing that you have experienced your whole life. And do you think before we reach that moment, if there might not be chocolate in the way we have it today, should we be eating less of it now? That question has a lot of complication to it. If we are thinking of the farmer piece, for example, a drop in demand is quite bad for for a lot of farmers that have increased production to meet global demand for this product. You even see it year to year if there's a small fluctuation, 2%, say the price just bottoms out. And we do now have the living income differential in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire to help support those farmers, but it's so new and companies have had, not name any names, but there have been some issues with companies trying to get around that because chocolate producers live and breathe by how much cocoa is worth. So I think dropping demand would not necessarily be a solution that would be sustainable. I think it might be worth dropping demand for chocolate that is cheaper than it should be because of other fillers that are added. For example, compound coating still uses cocoa products, but is a very different material and, you know, a much cheaper alternative to chocolate, but it still uses cocoa products and I don't think that would necessarily solve an issue, but it might be good for mindfulness, similar to if you're recycling, you're not necessarily saving the planet, but you're thinking about your consciousness of of being on the planet, how much you're consuming and contributing. And I think everyone should be aware that these products are inexpensive for a reason that is not necessarily sustainable either. So I don't think demand should necessarily drop, but consumers should be aware. Yes how to make consumer awareness the larger demand. This has been great, Kelsey. Do you have any final thoughts for us? Thanks for having me on, Lauren. I mentioned before we got on that this is my first, honestly, first real interview. Definitely my first podcast recording. I don't think I have anything else to add except enjoy chocolate however you can and however you want to. Thank you, Kelsey. And of course, we will lead readers and listeners to where they can find more about Voyage Foods. That is all for today.